often see joy as a distraction from the things that we need to get done. And so we tend to put it off. That's our natural response is to say, oh, when I get finished with this presentation, when I hit this next milestone, when I get the promotion, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have time to do the things that I love. When's the last time you felt real joy about your work? If you spend most of your time focused on driving results, but not on driving more joy, you probably have a joy gap. Welcome to Joy at Work. On this podcast, we'll think about how to build a culture that infuses more joy into everyday work life. I'm your host, Alex Liu, managing partner and chairman of AT Carney. How much do your physical surroundings affect your feelings of joy during the workday? And what simple changes could make your work week downright joyful? I'm excited to talk to one of the world's foremost experts on joy, author Ingrid Patel-Lee. Ingrid is a designer and author of the new book, Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. Uh, Ingrid is, of course, a pioneer on the topic of joy, finding it everywhere, designing it in, and the like. I'm, I'm really brimming with questions on how to apply that philosophy and that mindset to the workplace. Uh, but I wanted to maybe start off, Inger, with just a few first principle questions, um, just to get us going here. What inspired you to study joy? Well, it all started when I was in design school. I was in my first year of design school, and I really didn't think much about joy, actually, up until that point. And I was at a review. I had laid out everything I had made over the course of my first year of, of design school out on a table, and a, prof- a bunch of professors were critiquing it. They were giving me feedback on it. And one of them said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And this was really strange to me because I had always thought of joy as this very intangible, elusive feeling. And it definitely wasn't something that came from stuff, right? Material things. Um, That wasn't where joy was supposed to come from. We're supposed to find it within ourselves. At least that's what I thought. And so I asked these professors, you know, how do things create joy? How do these tangible things give us this intangible feeling of joy? And they couldn't answer that question. And so that really sent me off on a journey to try to resolve this paradox, to understand how could the material world, the physical world, actually elicit this feeling of joy. And that is really where, you know, 10 years later, here I am um, having sort of delved into that question and found not just um, some answers, but a career. It's really cool to see how your your thoughts on joy have evolved. I, I'd like to pivot a bit your mind towards the world of the workplace, which is where I where I spend my time. And I would be quite honest in saying that most people, most executives wouldn't put the word words joy and work or even joy and success in the same sentence. But on the other hand, we spend a lot of our time going to work, getting ready for work, work, talking about work. Why do you think we don't associate joy with our lives? Or why do you think we associate joy with our lives outside of work as opposed to at work? It's so true, isn't it? It's like we feel like we have to either earn joy and we earn it by working to deserve it. I think that 
some of that has to do with our Protestant work ethic, right? Um, this inherited belief that uh, we work and work and work in this life and we earn joy in the next life. So that's one way of looking at it. I think the other way of looking at it is that joy is really a distraction from success. It's something that, you know, we're supposed to put aside. We have joy when we're children. And then as we get older, we're supposed to put that aside. We're supposed to put aside play. We're supposed to focus and be serious. And that's how we achieve things. And I think because we associate happiness so much with achievement, we overemphasize, you know, working toward a goal and we see these little moments of joy as a distraction. But the research shows that this is really misguided, that this split, this dichotomy is really misguided. And that actually there are many ways in which joy can actually be a catalyst for success, not a distraction from it. It's interesting that the, you know, this culture of delayed gratification that you point to, the, the Protestant work ethic, the Calvinist ethic. I mean, I grew up in a Chinese household, Confucian, I, I suppose, and we had the same, the same uh, rhythm. You know, you, you can't, you can't go outside to play until you finish your studies. And, uh, and therefore, that was sort of something you, you had to work in order to get the joy or the happiness or the fun that you really want to do. I want to come back later to how we can blur those boundaries a bit so that actually work and joy actually go hand in hand, because there's certainly a lot of workplace distractions and disruptions that make it difficult to put them in the same the same world together. At the fundamental design level, the physical level, how we can start to infuse more joy in our environment, as a start at least. When I started trying to understand this connection between joy and the physical world, I started by asking people about the things and places that brought them joy. And what I noticed is that there were certain things that started to come up again and again and again. And when I tell you some of them, they're not going to seem like they have anything to do with work. They just might sound like a, a group of random things, but uh, things like cherry blossoms and bubbles and confetti, rainbows, rainbow sprinkles, polka dots hot air balloons, tree houses. These are things that the world over people seem to find joyful. And in trying to understand what makes them joyful, I stumbled upon something, which is that many of these things share common attributes. They share common physical attributes, things like bright color, a sense of elevation or lightness, a sense of abundance and multiplicity, sometimes a sense of symmetry or a repetition of, of pattern. And if we look at those things, we can use those elements to, and, and a few others, to shape our space in ways that create joy. And, and so starting to apply those things intentionally can have in, an influence on our emotional well-being. For example, research shows that people working in more colorful, brightly colored work environments are more alert, confident, friendly and joyful than people working in drab spaces. And so though it seems like these are just decorative elements around us, when we start to pay attention to those things, we can actually change our homes, our public spaces, and also our workspaces to bring out the best in us. You know, that that resonates with me. And of course, I listened to your TED talk where you went into this in some captivating detail. But it seems that there's a shorthand of, like you said, the, the color and the shapes, the brightness, etc. And one thing that I've picked up just in the last six months is the use of these emojis. It's such a quick way to communicate a feeling. And it seems like you can get that two-way mirror when you have these things outside you, re re you know, reflecting what you'd like to feel, you know, smiley, happy, 
anticipations and the like. And the the other thought that came to mind as as I listened to you is is the innocence of the child. I mean, a lot of the imagery you talk about, bubbles and balloons and, and the like, are, are what kids are naturally a, attracted to at birthday parties and the like. Is there any angle to that, sort of the, the childlike curiosity, the sort of return to the old good old days when we didn't care about all these other constraints, we just wanted to have our eyes light up with something? I think that's historically how we've approached joy in office design, actually, is through the lens of trying to go back to a state of childlike joy. And so, for example, you know, many R&D spaces or innovation labs at big companies often have beanbag chairs and lots of bright colors, and they feel a little like kindergarten spaces sometimes. And I think that th- that's really a mixed bag because while those spaces might stimulate nostalgia and childlike feelings in some people, they can also actually be off-putting. So if childhood maybe wasn't a particularly safe or joyful time for you, or if play wasn't something that was encouraged by your family, it might feel intimidating. Play can actually be, it's a very joyful state, but it's also a vulnerable state. You have to sort of let your guard down a little bit to play. And so I think that sometimes it's less about, while many of these joyful things are joyful in childhood, and we see that, to me, it's actually about tapping into the underlying mechanism behind this. So for example, one of the reasons that round things appear everywhere in childhood, I mean, if you look at childhood, you're right, it's it's round. Um, you have bubbles and balloons and balls and merry-go-rounds and hula hoops. You have all these round things in childhood. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, round shapes, circles and spheres are the safest shape. And there's actually a part of our brains that registers that even when we're adults. So researchers have placed people into fMRI machines and they've shown them pictures of angular objects and round ones. And what they found is that part of the brain called the amygdala associated in part with anxiety or threat, that part of the brain lights up when we see angular objects, but not when we see round ones. So what they speculate is that because in nature, many things that are angular, antlers or horns or sharp thorns are are dangerous to us, we evolved an unconscious sense of caution around these shapes, but curves set us at ease. And so if we think about that in it, you know, in terms of what we can do in an environment, we don't actually have to make something feel like a childlike environment. We can create something that is adult and mature and sophisticated, but brings in those curved elements. And maybe we stay away from primary colors, which have those sort of kindergarten associations, and we focus on the forms to create a kind of environment that feels joyful, but not necessarily too childlike. What's interesting to me, actually, is that most of the research on environments tends to be done in either workspaces or public spaces. And I think that's because companies have a stake in efficiency um, and in understanding whether these things actually have an impact on performance. And so that's why they're often studied in those contexts. So for example, you know, we can talk about art and plants in the home, but art and plants have been studied in the work environment much more than they've been studied in the home environment. So, you know, a a study that was done in 2010 looked at lean work environments, which are kind of the minimalist gray cubes that most of us are familiar with, and then enriched work environments, environments where people um, had plants and artworks on the walls. And what the study found is that people were actually 15% more productive in the enriched environment than they were in the sort of lean work environment. So I think that's something that it's just a fundamental 
truth about the way that we behave in space. It influences us whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether we're at the DMV, whether we're at our doctor's office. All of these things are acting on us unconsciously all of the time. I think that's a very powerful insight around the fact, I believe, that there are false boundaries between work and home and play and even, as you say, private and public. Because if you want you want to bring the whole person to work and you want to have a whole personality, these things all blend together. So as you, as you point out, the environment is, is so critical. If you were to grade, I guess, the companies and the institutions that you might come into contact with or even work with side by side, do you think we're, you know, 30% of the way through the journey in understanding this and applying it? Because it is truly compelling and it makes a lot of sense. But are we applying your principles in the designs of the future, the workplaces of the future, outside of these startups that have got foosball tables all over the place and stuff? I think we have a long way to go. And I think that part of the reason for this is a series of studies that was actually designed to prove that space did have an effect on people's emotions and well-being at work. But the conclusions that the researchers came to, and this was years ago, was a series of studies called the Hawthorne Studies. And these studies were actually funded by GE. They were funded by lighting manufacturers because they wanted to sell more lighting. And so they thought that if they could prove that more lighting was better for workers, um, for their well-being, then that would be a great way to sell more more light bulbs. Right, voila. Um, <laughs> voila. Um, but uh, what what the study came back with at the time was that those things didn't have an effect, but what did have an effect was the social environment. And so all of psychology, environmental psychology, all of the the focus in um, in workplace, the emphasis became on social dynamics and interactions in the workplace because the assumption was based on the conclusion of the of these studies that it didn't really matter what was around you. And researchers have recently been taking a look at these studies and finding that those conclusions were actually flawed and that not only do our surroundings influence the work, but lighting in particular has a big effect on us at work. And that, for example, workers who sit nearer to windows and have sunnier desks can actually sleep up to 46 minutes more per night than people working in interior um, windowless spaces and that uh, they're more active during the day. Um, they tend to have fewer health complaints. Uh, so the which means decreased rates of absenteeism. So all of these things are connected. And I think to answer your question, I think we are, we've been set back by these sort of erroneous conclusions. And now we're just starting to, again, revisit this question of how the work environment affects us at work. The other aspect that comes to my mind as I listen to you describe this is there are types of environment and types and groups of people that might be more amenable to these design principles. There's a lot of discussion now about the millennials who are entering the workforce. They're very demanding about where they work, the purpose of the firms that they that they work in. Do you see any patterns in the research or your own intuitions about how they can accelerate this approach to being more per intentionally joyful in the designs of their environments and the workplace? I think there are a couple patterns. The first one is that we now work everywhere. So because we because our phones are keeping us tethered to work we're working at home we're working at work we're working on the train we're pretty much working everywhere so everywhere is a workspace now to some extent and that's one thing the other is the evolution of co-working and the way that people are starting to come together in spaces that were not designed by any particular employer but were designed that were purpose built for the experience of working and working together i think these two things are really shaping space as we go forward that 
and in a way that is affecting young people more maybe than an older generation. But I think it's affecting all of us because it's putting pressure on companies to instead of form first and foremost, designing spaces to communicate their brand or just deliver some functional benefits, create spaces that feel better. Um, if, if you're working at home and you notice that you prefer to work at home than, than the office, probably needs to change because so many people have the option of at least part-time working from home. So to get you to come to the office, the office needs to be a place that feels more supportive to not just your work, but also your well-being. Let's switch a bit to the work culture. You talk about sort of joy not being a sacrifice to who you are. And at the same time, there are many employees, workers, young folks, old folks who believe that that having fun or taking time away is a guilty pleasure. You've written that joy is actually a form of resilience, a, a way of making you stronger in the long in the long run. I'd like to explore that a bit, how how we can apply that principle of resilience in the workplace. We often see joy as a distraction from the things that we need to get done. And so we tend to put it off. That's our natural response is to say, oh, when I get finished with this presentation, when I hit this next milestone, when I get the promotion, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have time to do the things that I love. And we can keep postponing indefinitely. And the result of that can often be burnout because we are working constantly and our bodies, the way that our bodies respond to stress is they're, they're designed or they're evolved to respond to stress with a sort of spike of certain stress hormones, so things like cortisol, um, adrenaline, um, that helps prepare our bodies for action. So when we're going into a big presentation, we feel that boost of energy, uh, that laser focus that we get from those hormones. Our blood pressure rises, our respiration rate rises, we breathe a little faster, and that helps us focus. And the problem is that when we keep doing that over time, and we we sort of live in that state where adrenaline is just constantly flowing, our, our bodies get fatigued. There's no rest. And so what we need is little moments where we can recover and moments of joy can provide that form of recovery. So research shows when we experience these little moments of joy during a difficult time, whether it's a, a, a work, a period of stress at work, or whether that is even a crisis, um, something devastating happens and we allow for a moment of laughter or a, mo a small moment of joy that those things can help our cardiovascular system recover from stress and that they can help us find meaning and purpose in difficult events, in challenging circumstances that can help us cope and become more resilient over the long haul. And so that's why I think of joy as a form of resilience, because when we're constantly putting it off, um, it makes not only happiness more inaccessible, but it leaves us in this state of burnout where we're not as effective at our jobs as we would like to be. I find that to be very encouraging, this this notion of resilience and sort of a life force. There's so much talk these days about what makes a, a balanced life, a long and healthy life and the like, but it seems that piece of the equation is something that is often overlooked. When you and I spoke, I don't know, a few months ago, I think, I was relaying to you the challenges that many companies that I work with have, uh, or employees at these companies and, and executives, which is, you know, you're in a big company, you might or may not be there for, for a long time. You've got these layers, you've got these silos, you've got this internal competition, you've got people with different rules, teams that don't really work as teams. And like, it's, you know, sort of the big company disease. And a, a lot of the research that we're trying to do, and I, it was, it's very much reinforcing with what you're telling us as well here, Ingrid, is, you know, finding the right combination of 
attributes in the workplace culture, you know, acknowledgments, harmony, Im- a sense of impact and the like. Now, they, aren't, they don't necessarily map to colors, but they map to feelings, which can be uh, maybe accentuated by colors. Any thoughts on that conundrum that, you know, the workplace world or the folks like me, consultants working for those types of companies can bring to the story? Because culture seems to be a limitation to a lot of what companies can achieve in a very competitive world. I think it can be a limitation, but I also think it can be a strength. And if you understand what is joyful about your culture and you seek to amplify that, I think that is a strategy for increasing the joy. So for example, you know, I used to work for IDEO, which is a notoriously playful company. You walk into IDEO and there are physical markers of play, a giant plane wing that has been brought into the space or a a yurt that was built in the space, or, you know, there's a constant sort of sense of tinkering. and, And that makes sense because that is IDEO's approach to solving big problems. It's rooted in play. And so it makes sense that playfulness would be woven throughout the culture and any meeting you go to would have an element of play in it. It wouldn't just be an ordinary meeting. And that works for a company like IDEO, but not all companies are going to be that way. And not all companies play isn't going to necessarily feel natural for all companies, but other companies might be rooted in a sense of, for example, a sense of, of freedom. Um, so I think a, a lot about the, the Kickstarter space and the Kickstarter space in Brooklyn is woven through with nature. And you really get a feeling of freedom in the culture and the way that people are working. They're sort of distributed throughout the space. Some are working on the roof. They are collaborating with people you know, far-flung people outside of the of the building. And I think that that reflects this sense of freedom that manifests um, to some degree in that culture. And so I think thinking about what is particularly joyful to you in your culture and figuring out ways to amplify that. If your culture naturally emphasizes people supporting others and you see a lot of people doing random acts of kindness for each other, you can build on that, I think. And studies have shown that those little pro-social acts, when they are supported and incentivized by the company, that they can actually multiply and create a a culture of generosity, a culture of support. So there are, I think, many different ways to go about creating a joyful culture. You made some very important points that really resonated with me, in fact. I think the culture as a differentiator is so critical because every company is different and how they interact with their customers or their clients are very different. And that can be a source of business value and a business case. But even within the culture itself, who we are, celebrating who we are individually and together as a group of teams and a larger team, that's really something that that keeps me awake at night as well. You mentioned generosity. That's actually one of our, you know, five core values that we'd like to sort of help dictate the way we interact with each other and our and our customers, for example, generosity, solidarity, passion, boldness, and curiosity. Now, those are words on a page uh, and they make sense if you see it. And I suppose the challenge of any leader, business leader or otherwise, is to create the environment for people to be themselves and therefore allow everyone to feel that sense of satisfaction and happiness in what they're doing. I think what you say is is so is so relevant. I, uh, I'm writing down some points and circling this point about the generosity and being real teammates to be able to allow joy to 
to happen. The joy is not something you sort of impose on people, I suppose. It's, I agree. It's yeah. definitely not something you impose. It's something I love the language of allow it to happen. And I think that I often say joy starts at the top because we look to leaders to set the tone for a team or an organization. And, you know, when you enter an organization, you find that it doesn't feel safe to laugh in the hallways. You don't hear any laughter in the hallways. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel joyful. People seem like they're holding themselves back. They seem suspicious or distrustful of other people. Often it's because that climate is being set at the top um, and, and people aren't being given permission to bring their joyful selves to work or they're not being given permission to take time off because the leader doesn't ever take time off. And so there's an implicit signal that, sure, it's in the policy that you're allowed to do this, but it's not something that is is really done here. And so I think part of the role of leadership is really in setting those conditions um, and creating the permission for people to feel and experience that joy. How do you answer people who think that this is just fluff? You know, that, you know, people should just do their job. People should just not try to seek a higher ground like this. I mean, it's it's great to be happy. It's great to talk about joy. But, you know, a lot of people will look at you and certainly have looked at me and say, what are you talking about? You know, it's that's not something we do. Is this something you hear or see? Or maybe you're, we've got a self-selecting group of folks anyway that follow us on this topic. I think that there's plenty of skepticism, but there's also plenty of research which shows that joy has a real impact on our success in many different ways. Research shows that business people make better decisions when they're in a state of joy and that they actually take into account a broader range of scenarios when making a decision. There's research that shows that joyful negotiators reach more win-win agreements, that joyful leaders have more engaged teams that actually complete their work in a more coordinated way with less effort. And there's studies that show that we are up to 12% more productive when we're in a state of joy. Um, so that's the sort of straight productivity and decision-making research. There's also research that shows that salespeople, when salespeople, frontline staff exhibit genuine joy, and it can't be faked, it can't be forced, it, it has to be really felt that we spend more time browsing in a store, that we are more likely to recommend the store to others, and that we're more likely to return for a repeat visit. So there are many, many different ways, apart from, you know, we talked a lot about the environment and, and that influence on employee well-being, um, retention and productivity in the space itself. But there are many ways in which joy more broadly can influence metrics of success, whether that's for teams, for leaders, for people out there on the front lines, um, working with customers. In all of these different areas, there are connections between joy and success. I'm hoping there's an acceleration in this topic. Are you seeing it? I mean, obviously, you've got plenty of demand for your for your thinking on this. And we'll talk about that in a second. But are you seeing it changing in any fundamental way? I think there's definitely excel an acceleration of interest around this topic. And it's exciting to see that people are starting to across industries. I mean, I'm seeing it in the healthcare space where there's a growing recognition of the as we start to consider, you know, this mind-body connection and our awareness that our health is not just our physical health and how our body is, but that our mental health, that these two things are intimately related and you really can't think about one without the other, that that is raising attention to joy in the healthcare space. I'm seeing it in the workplace space as, as we're talking about it. I, I'm seeing it across industries because I think education is a big one where I think we're starting to, to look more at joy because 
joy and motivation are intimately connected. They are intrinsically related. And so if you're thinking about what will get kids or adults to learn, then joy is a, is a huge part of it. So I think the reason that we're seeing this across industries, certainly, you know, there's an understanding that the world around us, we're facing some really, really big problems. And the way that those problems are being represented to us is in this sort of relentless feed of information and sort of dire information. And that the ability to stay resilient and start to find solutions for all these things is going to relate to our ability to to find joy and to be able to share joy, that those two things are connected. They're not separate. And joy is not a distraction from solving those big, hard problems, but that if we can bring a joyful spirit to that and start to find solutions that not only address some of these thorny issues, but do it in a way that brings people along because of that contagious nature, that we're going to be more successful in that process. I mean, you're so powerfully contagious on this topic. And I I'm, I get such a boost and a kick from listening to you. And I can feel the energy over the airwaves here. Obviously, you have a full calendar and workload. But how do you, just on a personal note, how do you find the time and your, any tricks of the trade in terms of uh, stress reduction, ways of keeping your sanity in a, in a world out, out, out of balance sometimes? Uh, any tips for our audience would be really well accepted, I think. I think the most important thing I've realized is getting a little bit of exposure to nature. And that can be getting out, if possible, or bringing the outside in. There's really interesting research that shows that being out in nature quiets the part of the brain that tends to ruminate and brood over problems. It also restores our ability to concentrate. So that sort of ability to focus and concentrate that gets worn down as the day goes on. And by after lunch, you're just a little bit useless um, for a few hours. That feeling, that being out in nature is one of the most powerful ways to address that feeling and restore your ability to focus and concentrate. And yet the research shows that we consistently underestimate how much better we're going to feel after a walk in nature or spending time in nature. So getting out into nature or even, you know, the research shows that even just bringing in a few plants into your workspace or into your home can bring a little bit of that same restorative effect. Um, So uh, spending time in nature is a big one. Finding little things to celebrate and finding things especially to celebrate with someone else. That can be one of the the most powerful ways to deepen our relationships and protect our relationships over the long haul, which is, as studies have shown, one of the most important ingredients in our long-term happiness. So my example is my husband and I often do happy dances at the end of the week. It's our way of sort of marking that transition to the weekend, Um, but it's a very joyful thing. And so having a ritual like that, that is celebratory, it's also something we do when one or the other of us has good news. So I think we often associate celebration with a big party or with, you know, going out drinking, but a celebration can be very small. And what it really what's really involved is just taking a moment to mark and do something special. It could be decorating, you know, your your workmate's desk when they had a great day at work. There's so many things you can do that are small to mark someone's good news or a happy event happening that those things can really alleviate stress and connect you to other people. Well, great, Ingrid. Thanks so much for your thoughts. Any final suggestions, words of the wise? If you had a magic wand, what would you want us all to do differently uh, in the next week or so? This is a small thing that you can do, but I think it's just to give yourself permission to feel the feeling of joy. I think a lot of us hold ourselves back from joy because we associate it with childhood. We associate it with 
being juvenile or silly. And, and we worry that if we express joy too visibly, if we laugh too loud um, or we are too playful, that we will be dismissed as not serious or you know superficial or frivolous. And I think that just taking a moment when you feel that urge to hold yourself back from joy, to actually let go of that and to give yourself permission to feel it and to express it can go a long way toward also you creating the conditions for other people to share their joy and to bring that joy up to the surface. That's so super. Thanks a lot. That's a that's a great way to end. And thanks, Ingrid, for your time today and fully appreciate all your great words of wisdom and look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you again to Ingrid Patel-Lee for her inspiration and enthusiasm around this topic of joy. And thank you for listening to our first episode. You know, joy is not really something that a lot of us think about when it comes to work. But even our own research at AT Kearney has shown that there's a global joy gap in the workplace, across the world, in various geographies, across various age groups, and across types of companies. It's time to fix it, and I think we can fix it. We spend so much time already in the office working with our teams and accomplishing some amazing things. So the next time you go back to work, make sure you follow some of Ingrid's advice. Let's look for joy daily all around us, in our team spirit, in the gifts and contributions of our colleagues, and in acknowledging them. Let's learn to laugh at our mistakes, well, as long as they're not too big, and just have more fun overall. I know I'll be thinking about it. And we'd love to hear how you bring more joy to your own workspace. Share a picture of your office with the hashtag joy at work and let us know what brings you joy at work. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in a couple of weeks with our next guest, behavioral scientist, John Levy. We're gonna be talking about a concept called the novelty effect and why novelty and adventure is a big part to bringing joy to work. If you're looking for ways to bring more joy into your work, subscribe to Joy at Work in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about how you inject a sense of adventure and novelty into your work. Share on social media with the hashtag Joy at Work. If you have ideas for future topics or guests, email us at joy at atcarney.com. This podcast is produced by AT Carney. We're a global management consulting firm. We try to find joy in helping our clients tackle their biggest challenges. Learn more at atcarney.com slash joy at work.